It's Sunday, May the 16th, 1937, in Paris. It's 6.30 p.m. on the platform of the Port du Rey metro station. The Line 8 train bursts out of the tunnel and screeches to a halt. Raymond Dubreuil stands at the center of the platform with his fiancée and a friend, waiting for the doors of the first-class car to open. There's one other door into the first class, with a group of passengers waiting to get on there, too. Finally, the doors slide open. The waiting passengers board. No one exits the first-class car through either entry point. Dubroy sees that there's only one passenger already inside. A young woman, elegantly dressed in a bright green suit and contrasting white hat, gloves, and purse. She's sitting alone on a double seat. Suddenly, the woman slumps over and falls to the floor. Dubroy's first thought is that she must have fainted. He rushes over to help her. As an army dentist, he's had some medical training, but Dubroy doesn't need to be a doctor to see that the woman is beyond anyone's help. Something is sticking out from behind her ear. Dubroy is horrified to realize it's the handle of a knife. The blade is deeply embedded in her neck. Dubroy's knowledge of anatomy tells him that her jugular vein must have been severed. She's still alive, but just barely. Dubroy knows that if the knife is taken out, she will die within seconds as the blood drains from her. Right now, the knife is acting as a stopper. The other passengers who got on with Dubroy have seen it now. The knife. The woman's scream draws the attention of the train's conductor. He pulls the emergency brake to keep the train in the station. He then calls out to the platform guard, telling him to get help. Time passes slowly. Every second of delay could cost the young woman her life. Eventually, the platform guard returns with a uniformed police officer. The policeman kneels over the injured woman and asks, Who did this to you, madam? Her lips move, but no sound comes out. The policeman thinks maybe the knife is preventing her from speaking, so he grabs the handle and pulls it out. It's a fatal mistake. Blood gushes from her neck, streaking the floor of the compartment. The paramedics arrive. They carefully lift the dying woman onto a stretcher and carry her out to the ambulance waiting at street level. Meanwhile, the local police inspector examines the contents of the woman's purse for clues. He finds papers identifying the victim as 29-year-old Letitia Turow. But who was Letitia Turow, and why was she killed? As you're about to hear, Letitia Turow was many things. She was an Italian immigrant a devoted sister and daughter, a respectable widow, a dancer for money, a factory worker, a cloakroom attendant. But above all, Letitia was a detective. And at the time of her death, she was working undercover on what was to be her last ever mission. My name is Mark Dotson and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, 
real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're in Paris for a truly baffling case. A daring crime is committed in a busy public place. Incredibly, there are no witnesses. Letitia Toureau died under extremely mysterious circumstances. In many ways, her life was an even bigger mystery than her death. From Noiser, this is Death of a Detective. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Letitia Toureau has the distinction of being the first person ever murdered on the Paris metro. Her death causes a sensation and spreads fear throughout the French capital. It isn't just the horrific nature of her murder that captures the public imagination. It's the impossible puzzle that it poses. What you're about to hear is a classic locked room mystery. Letitia was seen boarding the first class car alone at the previous station. She sat alone in an empty car. The underground train waited two minutes on the platform. Then the doors closed. During that time, no one else was seen to enter the first class car. In fact, according to witnesses, no one other than Letitia got into the first class car at Port Charenton and no one got out at Port Duray. Okay, so right now, you're probably thinking that the murderer must have entered and exited the first-class car while the train was moving. There are connecting doors to the adjoining second-class cars at either end. There's only one problem with that theory. The connecting doors were locked. Eliminate the impossible, and you're left with the truth. Wasn't it Sherlock Holmes who said that? Or something like that. When you rule out anyone else entering the first-class car at any point, the only possibility left to you is that Letitia killed herself, right? Let's take a closer look at that. By the time the ambulance arrives at the hospital, Letitia is already dead. Surgeon Dr. Charles Paul conducts an immediate autopsy. He establishes that the victim was killed by a single stab wound behind the right ear, which severed her jugular vein and carotid artery. The blade was driven in with such force that the tip was embedded in her spinal column. In Dr. Paul's opinion, it's inconceivable that the victim could have inflicted this wound on herself. In the first place, she wouldn't have been able to target the blade with the pinpoint accuracy needed to ensure a fatal blow. Secondly, she couldn't have driven it in with enough force to sink the blade as deep as it went. It's simply not possible that Letitia died by her own hand. On May the 18th, the case is passed to Principal Inspector Moreau of the Judicial Police. Usually dressed in a double-breasted suit with an immaculately pressed handkerchief poking out of the top pocket, Inspector Moreau cuts a stylish, if portly figure, a Hamburg hat conceals his receding hairline. Overall, he looks like a character in a classic 30s noir movie. In fact, with his jolly, hangdog expression, bags under his eyes, and neatly trimmed mustache, Moreau is perfect for the role of the world-weary detective. 
the man who puts away more criminals than his colleagues have had hot dinners. After reading the autopsy report, Inspector Moreau is convinced this is a professional hit. First, there's the murder weapon. With its slightly curved blade and bone handle, the eight-inch flick knife is typical of the kind used by professional assassins, in particular, Italian hitmen. Also, it's a trademark of these killings to leave the blade in the victim's body as a sign of the killer's power and audacity, a warning to others, cross us and we'll come for you too. Moreau contacts the knife's manufacturer in Auvergne and discovers that this particular knife is sold in only two stores in Paris. He pays the first store a visit and asks to see their customer records. The storekeeper shrugs. They don't keep tabs on their customers. Even if the killer did buy the knife from here, there's no way of tracing him. It's the same story at the other supplier. But Moreau isn't finished with the knife yet. He has the handle dusted for fingerprints. It's clean. The killer must have been wearing gloves. Moreau isn't discouraged. This kind of setback is usual in any investigation. Now Inspector Moreau digs a little deeper into Letitia Turo's background. He finds a note in her purse from a man called John, arranging to meet her at 10 p.m. on the night she was murdered. So who's John? To answer that question, Inspector Moreau and his team search Letitia's apartment in the 20th arrondissement, a poor district popular with Italian immigrants. Letitia lived in cramped rooms on the sixth floor, right up in the attic of a bland, typically Parisian apartment building. It has just one bedroom and a tiny kitchen with no hot running water. But despite this, it's well furnished and stylishly decorated. Letitia evidently had aspirations for something better. Inspector Moreau takes everything in, trying to form an impression of the young woman whose murder he's investigating. The shelves are stacked with novels and glamorous magazines. Letitia obviously liked to read, probably as a form of escapism. But Inspector Moreau soon discovers that she had a pretty adventurous life of her own, especially when it comes to romance. Tied up in a ribbon and tucked away in a desk drawer, the detectives discover a stash of letters written by a number of different men. It seems that Letitia had a gaggle of male admirers. Some of the letters come from a guy called John Martin, a sailor stationed in Toulon, over 500 miles away in the south of France. The handwriting matches the note found in Letitia's purse. Inspector Moreau allows himself a satisfied grunt. He's found the mysterious Jean. Piecing together the details from Jean's letters, Moreau learns that the couple met in the Heartbreak Dance Hall in Paris before Jean got drafted into the Navy. Moreau knows that most female murder victims are killed by a partner or an ex, the jealous or jilted lover who decides that if he can't have her, no one else can. Maybe that's the case here. Now, to be fair, there's really nothing that fits this theory in Jean Martin's letters. Still, Inspector Moreau 
would very much like to talk to the young man. Moreau's inquiries have to go through the sailor's commanding officer. Like everything official in France, there's a certain level of bureaucracy involved. It all takes time. While he's waiting to hear back from Martin's CO, Inspector Moreau turns his attention to Letitia Thoreau's friends, family, and colleagues. He discovers that Letitia was liked by everyone, a devoted daughter and a loyal sister, a fun-loving friend who always had a smile on her face, a conscientious and popular co-worker. No one had a bad word to say against her. But beneath this veneer of happiness, Moreau discovers that Letitia Thoreau was living in fear. She told friends that she was afraid of an obsessive lover, a powerful man who she couldn't shake off. This doesn't sound like Jean Martin, the low-ranking sailor in distant Toulon. According to her friends, Letitia's fears were stoked by a couple of dramatic incidents that happened in the days before her murder. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground-up bones and oyster shells. Double-glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. On Thursday, May 13th, Letitia was coming out of a metro station when she noticed a man walking towards her. The man pulled a knife and lunged at her. Showing remarkable courage, she fended him off with a sharp smack in the face. The guy obviously wasn't expecting her to fight back, and he ran off. Then in a separate incident around the same time, Letitia was just about to go into her apartment building when a car pulled up and a man got out. There was no doubt in Letitia's mind that the man intended to harm her. She could see it in his cold, threatening glare as he stalked towards her. Fortunately, just at that moment, the concierge buzzed her in. If Letitia knew who these men were, she never told anyone. Meanwhile, Inspector Moreau hears back from Jean Martin's commanding officer. He confirms that Martin had applied for leave to go to Paris on the weekend that Letitia was murdered. But his leave was denied, which means Martin stayed in Toulon and missed his rendezvous with Letitia. It also means he can't have been her killer. Next, Inspector Moreau tries to reconstruct Letitia's last day alive. In the morning, she went to a hairdresser to have her brown hair bleached blonde. Was she trying to change her appearance in the wake of the recent attacks? 
certainly looks that way, especially as that day she made another change to her normal appearance, dressing in a brand new green outfit. Now, this may not seem like such a dramatic departure, but ever since her husband's death in 1934, Letitia had always dressed in black. After the hairdressers, she went for a drink with her brother Ratan and friends. Then she had lunch at her mother's with her family. In the afternoon, she went to one of her favorite dance halls. Now, on the surface, Letitia appeared her usual sociable self. She danced the tango with dramatic flair, then laughed and joked as she raised a glass of Pernod. But her more perceptive friends sensed that she was anxious. She told them she was supposed to meet someone later and was worried about it. I'm laughing now, but I won't be laughing tonight because I don't expect things to go well, she said. Was she talking about her meeting with Jean? But Inspector Moreau has already established that Jean Martin was not in Paris that day. Maybe Letitia didn't know this, or maybe she was nervous about meeting someone else, her murderer, perhaps. Later that evening, Letitia was due to attend a banquet for Italian immigrants. Before that, at around 6 p.m., she left the dance hall, taking a bus to the Port de Charenton metro station. According to the bus driver, she sat alone. One witness described her as seeming nervous. At the metro station, she got into an empty first-class car, and somewhere between Port de Charenton and Port du Rey, a knife was plunged into her neck. Inspector Moreau realizes that before he can solve the mystery of who killed Letitia Thoreau, he needs to solve another mystery. Who was Letitia Thoreau? So far, he feels like he's just scraped the surface of this enigmatic woman. Letitia was born in the Aosta Valley in northern Italy in 1907. The area was known for its left-wing, anti-fascist leanings. In 1920, Letitia moved to France with her mother and siblings. Her father stayed in Italy. In the 1920s, there was a wave of immigration from the Aosta Valley, particularly after 1922, when Mussolini came to power. The new fascist government saw these exiles as a destabilizing threat and used undercover agents to spy on potential troublemakers. In December 1929, at the age of 22, Letitia married Jules Turo, a young man from a wealthy family. For her, the marriage was a step up the social ladder. The only problem was, Jules kept his marriage secret and carried on living with his parents. Not a good sign. Letitia's own family were puzzled by the match. Her father warned her, this is a trap, and one day you will tell me that I am right. Turned out the old man was right. When Jules died suddenly, Letitia's hopes of a better life collapsed. His family learned of her existence for the first time and wanted nothing to do with her. Letitia was left penniless. She seems to have found work in the Maxi Shoe Polish Factory, where she was said to be a good worker. But the attractive young widow was leading a double life. 
At night, she loved to frequent the Parisian dance halls. These were places where you could be whoever you liked and dance with anyone who caught your eye. Illicit love and dangerous liaisons flourished. Many of the dance halls were popular with Paris's criminal underworld, and political activists of both the left and the right rubbed shoulders there. Inspector Moreau talks to witnesses from the dance hall scene. He learns that Letitia sometimes worked as a professional dancer. In other words, she was paid to dance with single men. She also had a regular gig at the Heartbreak Dance Hall, working in the cloakroom. The inspector is beginning to suspect there's more to Letitia than meets the eye. For one thing, Moreau learns that she owed her job at the Maxi factory to a private investigator called George Rufignac. The factory had been hit by a series of strikes and the director wanted to make sure that it didn't happen again. He hired Rufignac's agency to put an undercover spy in the workforce to keep an eye on potential agitators. That spy was Letitia Turow. To the unexpecting observer, Letitia looked like any other worker. Initially employed sticking labels on jars of polish, Letitia threw herself in the monotonous work with enthusiasm. She got on well with the other, mostly female workers, joining in the gossip as they sat at their workbenches. Her co-workers quickly grew to trust her and confided details about their private lives, affairs, illnesses, financial worries, or simply what they were planning to have for dinner that evening. She heard the occasional grumblings about pay and conditions or other grievances with the management. She made a mental note of it all and reported back to Rufignac. Whether she felt bad about spying on people who thought of her as a friend, we don't know. Probably not. That was her job. And she was good at it. None of the other factory workers ever suspected she was an undercover detective. Next, Moreau talks to the manager of the Heartbreak Dance Hall and discovers that Rufignac was also responsible for placing Letitia in the cloakroom there. All right, now hang on, hang on. Why would a private detective agency be interested in cloakrooms? Well, in those days, dance hall cloakrooms were used as unofficial post offices with people passing secret messages to one another. You know, the kind of thing. Love letters between adulterers, inside information for a heist, political conspirators arranging their next secret meeting. It seems like Letitia was there to monitor this kind of activity and perhaps even intercept communications. Moreau is also intrigued by a red and black ribboned medal that Letitia was wearing at the time of her death. He recognizes it as a badge of the Republican League for the Public Good. He makes inquiries with the organization and discovers that her membership was sponsored by, yep, you guessed it, George Rufignac. The inspector decides it's time to talk to Rufignac in person. Rufignac is a neat little man with a well-trimmed mustache. At first, the private detective is cagey. It goes without territory, I guess. But when he learns why Inspector Moreau was there, he seems genuinely shocked. Rufignac confirms 
that Letitia Turow was employed as a detective on a freelance basis by his agency. The kind of work she did for him included surveillance and information gathering. Occasionally, she was required to go undercover. Rufiniak had employed her in 16 assignments over several months, about roughly once a week. He obviously was impressed by her skills. He says that when she turned up at his agency the first day, there was nothing he could teach her. Rufiniak confirms his high opinion of Letitia in an interview with the French true crime magazine, Detective, saying, she was a real expert in all of her duties. I gave her delicate surveillance work and difficult investigations, and she always did a great job. Letitia Turow was not just a detective, she was a great detective. Inspector Moreau discovers that Rufiniak wasn't Letitia's only employer in the sleuthing business. Letitia's brother, Raton, reveals that Letitia had asked him to help her out in an investigation she was carrying out in the 18th arrondissement, a vibrant bohemian neighborhood popular with artists. But Raton had little talent for detecting, so Letitia ended up doing the job herself. When Inspector Moreau asks Rufiniak what she was doing in the 18th arrondissement, he has no idea. He didn't send her there. So, who did? And why? The honest answer to both questions is, we don't know. Our best guess is that she was working for the Paris police. Why do we think that? Because it turns out that Rufiniak wasn't the only one who supported Letitia's membership of the Republican League for the Public Good. Moreau discovers she had a second sponsor, a police officer called Inspector Sator. Filling in the gaps, it seems likely that Sator was her police handler. Sator remains an obscure figure to this day, and we can only speculate about the work Letitia was doing for him. But the likelihood is that it was political rather than criminal in nature. Why? Because the Republican League was a political organization. Sator wanted her on the inside so that she could report back to him about their activities. Now, maybe you're thinking someone from the Republican League bumped Letitia off. It's possible, but not likely. The League was actually a moderate organization, promoting mainstream liberal ideas. They certainly weren't terrorists. They actually supported the government. But not only that, when Moreau speaks to League members who knew Letitia, they all speak very highly of her. No one suspected she was an undercover agent, which just shows how good she was at her job. Eventually, Inspector Moreau comes to the conclusion that Letitia must have been working for someone even more shadowy than Rufiniak and the Paris police. And there are two likely candidates. If he's right about either of them, Moreau realizes he hasn't got a hope in hell of ever finding out the truth about what happened to Letitia. Number one is the French Secret Service. She could have been recommended to someone there by her police handler. Alternatively, she may have been working for the Italian Secret Service. She was Italian, after all. And there's a third alternative. 
maybe, just maybe, she was a double agent, playing all sides off against each other. If so, she was playing a very dangerous game indeed. To understand what these different sides were, we need to take a look at the bigger picture of French politics between the wars. One word sums it up. Polarized. On the left, you have Léon Blum's socialist government. On the other side, a number of right-wing groups had arisen in opposition. The most extreme of these is the Secret Committee of Revolutionary Action. The group is more commonly known as La Cagoule, or the Hood, after the hooded masks members wear at meetings. One such meeting is the initiation of a new member. The initiate is taken to a secret location. He or she is led into a dimly lit room where heavy curtains are drawn. The new recruit sees a table draped in the French flag. In front of it stands the Grand Master, dressed in crimson robes, his face hidden by a hooded mask. Also in the room are about a dozen or so other individuals wearing black robes and masks. These are the other members of the cell that the new recruit is being sworn into. The La Cagoule structure is based on small groups who receive their instructions from above and never come into contact with the member of any other cells. The ceremony is designed to impress and intimidate. The initiate swears a solemn oath of allegiance to La Cagoule, promising fidelity, discipline, and ultimate secrecy. What this means is spelled out in no uncertain terms. Any betrayal is considered treason, punishable by death. Even just to reveal the existence of La Cagoule is forbidden. At the end of the ceremony, the new member is given their own robes. As they put them on, they feel themselves become part of something greater. The fear they felt a few moments ago is converted into a sense of power and domination. God help anyone who gets in their way. Because, you see, La Cagoule is an extremely violent and ruthless group, a quasi-military organization bankrolled by some very powerful men. Their list of backers reads like a who's who of French big business. L'Oreal, Michelin, Tattinger. Despite using the French flag in their ceremonies, their aim was to bring down the legitimate government. The plan is to provoke civil war in France by carrying out a number of false flag terrorist attacks, which they would blame on the communists. La Cagoule can then emerge as the nation's saviors, taking up arms to put down the non-existent uprising. The next step is to establish their leader, Eugène de Lancle, as a Mussolini-style dictator. Day to day, their main operation is gun running. They supply Franco's side in the Spanish Civil War with weapons and stockpile guns and explosives for their own purposes. They also construct underground bunkers and prisons in preparation for seizing power. The question is, was Letitia Turo mixed up in La Cagoule? Now, this is one question we do have the answer to. And that answer is, yes. 
Despite the secrecy surrounding La Cagoule, the police have known about the existence of this dangerous group since December 1936. They even know the names of the three founders, Eugène Delancle, Jacques Correz, and Gabriel Jonte. Naturally, the police would have wanted someone on the inside to feed them information about La Cagoule's plans and operations. And given her particular skill set, Letitia Toureau was the ideal person. At a distance of nearly 90 years, it's difficult to know the precise timeline of Letitia's infiltration of La Cagoule. One thing we do know is that at some point, Letitia was Gabrielle Jante's mistress. Intelligent and well-educated, Jante was arguably the intellectual of the movement. He was also a key figure in their gun-running activities. Was Jante the powerful man that Letitia was so afraid of in the weeks and days before her death? We don't know. We also don't know whether Letitia was already his mistress when she was approached by the police, or whether they encouraged her to get close to him. Perhaps they put pressure on her to feed them information, or maybe she did it willingly. At first, it must have felt like an exciting game, but when Laka Ghoul's assassination squad started killing political opponents and disloyal members, she must have realized that she was in way over her head. Letitia's murder came just a few months before the double assassination in Normandy of two Italian anti-fascist brothers, Carlo and Nello Rosselli. This incident was very probably the reason for her death. We know that La Cagoule carried out the hit. We also know they did it at the request of the Italian Secret Service, who agreed to pay them in machine guns. We know that Letitia made regular trips to Italy to visit her father. What if she was also there on La Cagoule's business? Maybe as a go-between with the Italian Secret Service. It's an intriguing thought, especially if she was then passing on whatever she learned to the French authorities. All right, so let's say Letitia found out about the plan to kill the Rossellis. This was dangerous knowledge. So dangerous, she started to get nervous. Other members of La Cagoule grew suspicious. The word was she was some kind of detective, that she was working for the police. Someone had a word with her lover, Gabrielle Jante. She couldn't be trusted. All this is speculation, but it fits with what we know. It would also explain why Letitia was suddenly afraid, afraid of the powerful man and wanted to free herself from his influence. The end for La Cagoule comes about four months after Letitia's murder. They go out with a bang. Well, two bangs, actually. In September 1937, La Cagoule plant two bombs in the center of Paris, which they blame on communists. Two policemen are killed in the attacks. It's the first phase of their plan to seize power. The authorities don't fall for their ruse. The police continue to monitor the organization, gathering information until they're ready to swoop. 
throughout October, November, and December of 1937, many of the leading members of La Cagoule are rounded up and detained. This includes the would-be dictator, Eugène de Longle. Other prominent members, such as Letitia's former lover, Gabriel Jante, managed to escape abroad. Inspector Moreau is not involved in interviewing the members of La Cagoule who have been arrested. But you can bet he's interested to know if they have anything to say about Letitia's murder. It turns out that two of them do, Pierre-René Lacouti and Fernand Yacoubier. Lacouti is the guy who built the bombs that La Cagoule planted in central Paris. He claims that he heard from a senior member of La Cagoule that the organization was behind Letitia's murder. As for Yacoubier, he was one of the killers involved in the murder of the Rosselli brothers. He goes even further than Lacouti. He points the finger at a man called Jean Fiol. Fiol was La Cagoule's head assassin. He led the operation to kill the Rosellis and is known to be responsible for a number of other killings. Yacoubier claims that he heard it from Fiol himself, that he was the one who killed Letitia Thoreau. A devout Catholic with extreme right-wing views and uncontrollable violent moods, Fiol is a loose cannon, even by La Cagoule's standards. He looks like a plausible suspect for Letitia's murder. But here's the thing. The detective interviewing Lacuti and Yacoubier don't seem to take them seriously. Admittedly, Lacuti's statement is vague and secondhand. Yacoubier is more specific, but it's still hearsay. Maybe Fiol was bragging to him wanting to take credit for a slick assassination that had mystified the world. What we know about the murders that Fiol definitely did commit is that they were messy, chaotic affairs that often got out of hand. Did he really have the self-discipline necessary to carry out the daring attack on the Metro, which required ninja levels of precision and stealth? Maybe for once, everything went right for him. It's not impossible. Unfortunately, the police can't bring him in for questioning. By now, Fiol is hiding out in Spain, beyond the reach of French justice. Who knows? Maybe it was Fiol, but there's one detail, one clue, that suggests it wasn't. The knife. Remember what Inspector Moreau thought when he examined it? He was convinced it was typical of the kind of weapon used by Italian hitmen. So maybe the Italian Secret Service got one of their own to take out Letitia. In this scenario, the Italians found out about Letitia's disloyalty and the threat it posed to their operation against the Rossellis. Okay, we know they preferred to subcontract their black ops in France to La Cagoule, but given the two bungled attempts against her, maybe they decided to take matters into their own hands. Whoever killed Letitia Turo, there's still one question that demands to be asked. How the hell did they do it? Unfortunately, in 1930s Paris, there were no CCTV cameras and metro cars. So we'll have to use our imaginations. 
Port de Charenton, where Letitia boards the first-class car, is at the end of the line. The trains wait at the platform for several minutes before departing. On the evening of May 16th, Letitia sits alone in the otherwise empty first-class car. The adjoining second-class cars are filling up fast. It's a public holiday tomorrow, and everyone's in a good mood. Like Letitia, some have already been drinking. People are on their way out for the evening, excited, bustling, wrapped up in their own lives. No one really pays much attention to what anyone else is doing, and no one sees what happens in the first-class car. No one sees a man enter the first-class compartment through the open door nearest Letitia. Even Letitia doesn't see him get on, though she does hear his soft footstep landing behind her. She half turns. Now, out of the corner of her eye, she sees him. But he's just a blur moving ominously towards her. He reaches out, something metallic flashing in his hand. Letitia feels like she's been punched at the back of the head, just behind her ear. As quickly and stealthily as he got on, the man leaves the car. The doors are still open as the train waits to depart. He mingles with the crowd, and we lose sight of him. Maybe he gets in another car. Maybe he leaves the station. Letitia cries out, but there's something blocking her throat. She can feel a deep, stabbing pain where she was hit. The doors close. She's alone. Alone and dying. Is this really how it happened? We don't know. But when you think about it, it's the simplest, most obvious explanation. More often than not, the simplest explanation turns out to be true. Of course, there's still unanswered questions. Was the killer waiting for Letitia in the metro station? Or had he followed her from the dance hall? The bus driver didn't mention anyone getting on the bus at the same stop, so it's more likely that he was waiting for her, which means her killer was very well informed about her movements. The other big question is how come no one saw it happen? Well, maybe someone did. But for whatever reason, fear perhaps, they never came forward. So who was the killer? The chances are we'll never know. Or maybe we'll find out in 2038. That's when Letitia Tarot's case files are set to be unsealed. In case you're wondering, no, it's not standard practice for the files in a murder investigation to be sealed for 101 years. So, why did it happen this time? Most likely, for reasons of national security. That wouldn't be surprising if Letitia was doing work for the French Secret Service. The conspiracy theorist's explanation is, there was a cover-up. Powerful men were linked to La Cagoule, members of the French establishment. Even if they weren't directly involved in her murder, they would have been embarrassed if their fascist sympathies came to light. Maybe when the files are opened, we'll get the answers we're looking for. Or maybe the question, who killed Letitia Turo, will forever remain a mystery. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We're in Auburn, Washington, 
in 1986. Sue Snow, a healthy 40-year-old woman, is found unresponsive in her bathroom. She's rushed to the hospital, where she dies a short time later. During the autopsy, the pathologist notices a strange smell. The smell of almonds. It's a scent she knows well. It seems Sue Snow has died from cyanide poisoning. Aurora Police Detective Mike Dunbar and FBI Special Agent Jack Cusack take the case. Over the course of the investigation, a pharmaceutical company will lose millions of dollars. The state of Washington will be plunged into panic at the prospect of a killer walking among them. But will one of the biggest manhunts the state has ever seen help unmask the perpetrator? Or will the killer claim more victims before their reign of terror is over? Join us next time on Detectives Don't Sleep for Bad Medicine.